Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Producer-director Abby Epstein's career has been a rich and rewarding one. It began in 1992 in Chicago when she formed her own theatrical company, Roadworks Productions. Abby directed several plays there before moving to New York, where she was assistant director on Rent and worked on the Vagina Monologues with Eve Ensler, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, and a series of productions in Spain, Mexico, and Canada. Abby's film directing debut came in 2004 with Until the Violence Stops, a documentary about V-Day, the grassroots movement inspired by Ensler's play. Featuring Jane Fonda, Rosie Perez, and Salma Hayek, Until the Violence was screened at Sundance and premiered on Lifetime Television, where it received both an Emmy and a Gracie Allen Award. In 2007, Abby joined forces with actress Ricky Lake. Their first collaborative effort was the celebrated feature documentary, The Business of Being Born, which premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival. It explores the maternity care system in this country, and it inspired their book, Your Best Birth, and follow-up doc series, More Business of Being Born. Abby and Ricky have gone on to produce other documentaries with BBOB Films, Breast Milk, and The Mama Sherpas. Their newest venture, Weed the People, which Abby directed and Ricky produced. This documentary explores the use of cannabis for children diagnosed with cancer. we got a lot to talk about, so let's meet and get to know Abby Epstein. So welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Sandy. I'm delighted to be here. Let's hit the ground running, Abby. Where did all this come from? I definitely started out more as a performer, which I, I think is a very common instinct. I think directing is usually something you find kind of later. It's like a later instinct. Mm-hmm. First of all, I think sometimes for women, you don't even really understand that it's a career option. So, you know, you're not even sort of aware of that. But I mean, looking back, I guess I was always directing. I just didn't know that's what it was called. <laughs> you know, it was like, <laughs> you mean you were bossing was, people around? I was always bossing people around. <laughs> I was always putting on a show, mm-hmm. always ask my sister, my cousins. They're like, oh, we did Peter Pan. We did Mary Poppins. We did, you know. This is such a tie that binds among the women who um, either are behind the camera or in front of the camera. We were putting on plays at home. and I used to hold my cousins and my siblings hostage Mm -hmm. in the basement for like days. Because they weren't doing that, weren't performing? Oh, yes. It was like, you're Captain Hook. I don't care if you're four years old. You're (laughs) Captain Hook. You walk out on this line, you know. And then I would get so angry at my parents and aunts and uncles because they wouldn't like watch with like pure attention. Of course. You know sit through our five-hour, you know, <laughs> Pirates of Penzance <laughs> at nine <laughs> with three-year-olds. Um, yeah, so I guess I was always directing. And I was writing, too. I was I always did a lot of creative writing. And then I did go to Northwestern University, which offered a performance studies degree, and which was part of the theater department. So I did do a lot of very traditional, you know, like singing and dancing. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know. So you had talent. In the musicals. I mean, separate I, from what you did in the basement I, or in the backyard. Yeah, I, <laughs> I did. Like, I would say I was a good dancer. I was a good actor. And, you know, I was like a fairly good singer. Not mm-hmm. Probably not getting anywhere near to like Broadway standards. But, you know, for college productions, I was fine. Um, and so I was really, I was doing that. And it was great, and I was having fun. But, you know, you always have that kind of thing in the back of your head, like, is this, like, going to be my life? Am I going to be one of those 
theater gypsy people? You know, am I going to live in like a little walk up in Times Square and like <laughs> and I'm not gonna waitress and waitress, mm-hmm. which I did tons of that, you know. But then I think there was a little turning point for me, which was like junior year at Northwestern. Um, this woman came up to me. And she said, we're starting a theater company at school to put on the work of women playwrights and to give women more roles. And it was actually something they started in response to the theater department, which that year had done the most unprecedented unprecedented number of male-driven shows. There were like three female roles. I remember they did this play K2 that is like a two-hander for two men. They did another big period piece with like 50 men. And What year was this? This would have been like 1991. Okay. And I was sort of impressed that they were like woke enough to even realize that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because at that time- Because that could be just so ho-hum. Yeah. Because it's just been de rigueur before. Totally. So what's your point? Like I didn't realize women weren't getting the same opportunities Mm -hmm. on the main stage. You didn't know any better. I Mm -hmm. didn't know. And 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 so they developed this in sort of resistance to what the theater department had put on. And um, they said, we'd like you. They pegged me. And they said, we'd love you to pick a female playwright and to direct a show. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, I hadn't really thought of doing that before, of directing before. So I remember I, like, dug into the library. Like, I was, like, sitting in the carols of the Northwestern Library, just, like, digging for female writers. Because obviously nothing came to you. I mean, it was at that time, it was like Wendy Wasserstein. I looked and I looked and I found this little play by Susan Miller. Do you know who Susan Miller is? I don't think I do. She did My Left Breast. She was like, did one of the early breast cancer pieces. She's a writer and a playwright. And I found this little piece that she probably wrote in the 60s called Cross Country. Mm -hmm. And it was a really beautiful story about a professor who's married, um, but falls in love with a female student. I didn't even mean to be so woke. And I guess it was pretty controversial at the time because the actress who played the professor, I'm still friendly with her, and she told me how difficult it was to do this kissing scene. There was a gender thing. It was like a lesbian romance story. Boy, touched a lot of bases, huh? Yeah, and she leaves her family, this character. She leaves her husband and her child to pursue a relationship um, with the student. And it was very controversial, this kiss that they had. I didn't, I didn't remember it as such. But I, so I directed this play, Cross Country, and it was really a revelation for me. And, you know, it was almost like when you're doing something and you're like under the spell of it mm-hmm. to such a degree that you're sort of living and breathing it and you're not even really aware if you're eating or sleeping, you're just consumed yeah. by the artistic process. That's what happened to me when I was directing this play. And then it really gelled. And then I was like, oh. Was the play well-received? Yeah, yeah. It was really well-received. I mean, I don't know how I found this little play, but it was a deep... Well, you were meant to find that little play. Yeah. So that was a turning point on many levels, wasn't it? You know, it was much more of a kind of imaginative... You know, we were in sort of one of the smaller venues. We didn't have the big theater department money. So everything was done very black box, very Mm -hmm. minimalistic. And yeah, it was a very memorable, powerful piece. So clearly it was a revelation for you, wasn't it? Yeah. And that in spite of finding this little tiny 
play, it became a natural act. It did. And I really, I was glad that I'd had all the experience of being an actor and being an acting class all those years and doing the Shakespeare and doing the Greek tragedy because I really, really love that aspect of it, mm-hmm. you know, which was working with the actors. For me, you know, working for the first time with designers, you know, that was challenging. I didn't know how to talk to a lighting designer or a set designer. You know, I didn't have the language. I kind of knew what I wanted. But, you know, I mean, the technical aspects of putting on the show were were a little bit more new. But I really loved pulling those performances out of people. And I remember when we did the first kissing scene with the two women and they were really nervous. And I just instinctively did this improvisation where I had them like – pretend they were little birds or little animals and nuzzling each other, you know, and I got them like out of their heads. Sure. Uh-huh. You know, sort of just not thinking, okay, we're going to have mash lips now, but, you know, <laughs> right. we're we're just two little birdies. So I found that I just had a knack for that of like creating a safe environment for actors to explore. And then this, my senior year, I decided to direct a play called Road, which I had seen, I guess, many, many years before. It's a Jim Cartwright play, and it's it's a very interesting play. It's um, supposed to be staged essentially like at promenade style, so the audience moves ah, uh-huh. with the action. So, you're, you know, you're kind of in a black box theater, but it's deconstructed, and the play is sort of happening all around you, so it's, it's supposed to feel like you're on this road in a very... Um, impoverished part of northern England Mm -hmm. in Margaret Thatcher's England. I found by the senior year that most of the really top actors in the program wanted to work with me. So I remember there was a little, even a little tension because there was one actress I really wanted. Um, She's quite famous now, actually. Her name's Catherine Hahn. She's wonderful. And I really wanted Catherine Hahn for my part, but one of the professors in the department, he wanted her. Well, you were overruled. I was overruled. But, you know, so it even got, like, competitive Mm. almost. And I was like, this is strange. Like, these people are supposed to be mentoring me, but yet I'm somehow... (laughs) They're my competition. (laughs) They're my competition by senior year. So we did this production of Road that really was so sensational. And we decided to move it to downtown Chicago. And then that's how my theater company was born. And we called it Roadworks. I was just going to say, so there's the connection. Yeah, there's the connection. Yeah, you have to get up pretty early to fool me. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that speaks volumes that you said, I'm going to start my own production company. That's impressive, Yeah, and it was not me alone. I mean, I have to say that there were some go-getters, you know, in the company as well. Like there was, you know, there were actors who were in the ensemble of that production. Well, clearly you knew you couldn't do this by yourself. I mean, you're not an idiot, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Yeah. And so did it take off? Yeah, it took off big time. So it was really funny. You know, we raised the money from friends and family to open the show. And, you know, that was so wonderful about, like, starting a career in Chicago is that it was so affordable Really, you could raise like $5,000 and put on a show. It was sort of interesting because I was developing in front of the press. So as opposed to, you know, like coming into New York and you have your big show and your big moment and then you get these reviews, these critics at, you know, the Sun-Times or the Reader or whatever the big Chicago papers were, they saw me, you know, from a 23-year-old, just-out-of-college director all the way up through, you know, working with Steppenwolf. Mm -hmm. And they really embrace me and they embrace my company. And 
There's a real community in Chicago. There's a real collaborative theater community where, you know, the media, they want you to do well. The stakes are not as high, and it's not this cutthroat commercial game where it's about, you know, you should buy tickets to this play or you shouldn't buy tickets to this play. Did the press make a big deal about the fact that you were a she? They did. I had two shows up one season that each got nominated for like 10 different of those Jeff Awards, which is like the local theater award. And they did say a big thing. I was like the youngest woman ever to be nominated for these awards. I never noticed it so much except for when I had plays where I had to cast older men. That was always <laughs> very interesting because uh-huh. it's very interesting to be 22 years old, you know, and it's trying to direct a middle-aged man. Is interesting an interesting word <laughs> to use. Challenging. Okay. Challenging. Or could I use fraught? Was it fraught? <laughs> it could It could be fraught. It's, it's funny because around that time, I actually got a scholarship to get a, a uh-huh. master's in theater from UC Irvine. Mm-hmm. And so I had gotten accepted. I think I just applied on a whim because I wasn't sure if I wanted to like run this theater company and wait tables. I mean, meanwhile, you have to understand I was like a hostess at this restaurant where I was basically running my theater company (laughs) out of the hostess stand. I got fired from every temp job. Well, you had other fish to fry. Because they would always be like, are you working here? Why do people keep coming to the restaurant to pick up posters? Like, what's going on? At the same time that I'm developing myself as a director, I'm also trying to actually be a responsible theater company owner and I'm actually trying to look for content that reflects what audiences want to see. Of course. I'm not detached, you know, kind of doing or have tunnel vision. Or have tunnel vision, yeah, or doing these sort of crazy like artistic, you know, explorations that have no meaning to anyone but a couple academics. So I like the fact that I had a pressure to like raise money, sell tickets, you know, put on these shows. So then you decide that You were ready for New York. Yeah, I I had taken one of our shows that we did in Chicago with my company. I had taken that show to L.A. Mm -hmm. We moved it to L.A. Um, And like pretty much all the actors got cast in like movies and TV shows. (laughs) Everybody was gone and (laughs) nobody left you in the dust. Uh No one came back to (laughs) Chicago. But um, yeah, you know, I'm from New York. I'd always anticipated returning. So I started, uh, you know, doing some assistant directing in New York. And then I started working on Rent because Michael Greif, who's the director of Rent and Dear Evan Hansen and some other amazing shows, believe it or not, Michael had been in Chicago right after I got out of college and I had assisted him on a very small show for a small theater in Chicago. But we got to be friends and then he did Rent and he called me up and said, yeah, can you be in Los Angeles in two weeks? I need somebody to help me direct these tours. So that was an amazing opportunity. And then I so then I started working on rent. But was a seminal moment for you, the vagina monologues? Yeah. So the vagina politically. Yeah. So the vagina monologues, what happened with that is that Joe Mantello, the director and Eve Ensler, the playwright, had hired me to 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 come on and start directing the play as they were bringing in all these women. Yeah. Remember, they used to have like three yes. women. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because Eve was sort of leaving her stint, and then it was going to now turn into this sort of like three women um, on a rotating cast. Yes. Yeah. And I would say like maybe like a week into rehearsal, you know, Eve just turned to me and like grabbed me, and she was like, you need to work on the V-Day campaign. I've got to get you working on V-Day, you know? So... While I was directing the play, The Vagina Mug, she also brought me in to work on her V-Day movement. 
to end violence against women and girls. Mm -hmm. And that actually was so fascinating and so, I mean, I was so amazed by what was going on and this kind of social movement that this play had spawned and Mm. how women were using this play for healing, for resistance. It was incredible. Yes, and so I powerful. Was traveling the world with Eve, you know, and I directed vagina monologues in Mexico City and I directed in Toronto and I was, you know, translating it into other languages and just seeing how universal this is, this shame around the vagina and this weird inability to even like say the word in print or the more in public. things change, the more they stay the same, right? not for nothing. But. Yeah. And I said to Eve, this needs to be a documentary. You must document what's going on here. So she ended up hiring a documentary film director, this wonderful documentary film director, this woman who we were like, oh, great, she's going to do it. And then like two weeks before we were supposed to start shooting, she pulled out. And Eve kind of turned to me and said, well, you know, this was your idea. You direct the film. No kidding. <laughs> this is like 2000, 2001. And so at that time, I had I'd done a tiny bit of work at Warner Brothers in L.A. They had brought me in. They had wanted to try to groom me to be a television director because, again, they had no women. Mm-hmm. And this was the age of Sex in the City, and everybody was trying to make Sex in the City spinoffs, and they had no female directors. So I had had a, you know— couple of weeks on Warner Brothers sets, like observing. And literally, that was my entire training before directing this documentary. So I made a real left turn. And at the time, I remember my agent had called me my theater agent because they had offered me to go do Mamma Mia, like all over the world. And he was like, I can't believe you're, you're turning, turning me down, down. Mamma Mia. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, I To mean, focus on v- vaginas. I know. <laughs> he was like, I mean, financially. He just like couldn't wrap his hand around. He's like, this is going to be a lot of money. Like you're talking about like taking over this whole franchise of mm. Mamma Mia. And I was like, no, 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 no. I can't. I can't. I got, I've got to do this documentary. I'm going to explore a new medium. I'm going to learn something new. It's going to be a total adventure. So that was a big game changer for you, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And I think working with Eve and worth working on Vagina Monologues, it, you know, it really was an amazing synthesis for me mm-hmm. of theater and also like some of the feminist and empowerment themes that had been in some of my theater work or just in my life in general. But it coalesced in a different way, didn't it? Did. It did coalesce in a different way. And I think that, again, I felt also like nobody was really paying attention in the right way. Like, I think about Eve Ensler and those V-Day times a lot now during this Me Too movement. I'm sure. Because I feel like, my God, you know, we were screaming this from the rooftops in 2001. And I remember we had uh, one V-Day event at Madison Square Garden, and we had a cast of 80 women, like huge celebrities. We had Oprah. We had Jane Fonda. We had Glenn Close. We had, I mean, we had huge celebrities and 80 actresses all on stage, all performing the vagina monologues, you know, at different times. And we had, you know, Queen Latifah. We had music. It was an incredible show. We sold out Madison Square Garden. Wow. Okay. A, it was like it never happened. (laughs) Like got no press, got no attention. And then, you know, at the end of the show, what Eve always would do is she would ask people to stand if they'd ever been molested or raped or in any Abused. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And every single woman stands. Jane Fonda, Oprah, they're all standing. Sally Field, they're all standing saying this has happened to me. And it was like, 
I'm sorry, but it was like in a vacuum, like to us in the room and to us in the movement who were doing this work, it felt huge, but I don't, it didn't reverberate, you know? Mm. So I, I find it really interesting now that for whatever reason, the world is ready for me too. It's here. So take me now to how you hooked up with Ricky Lake. Why did your paths cross? And then how did you come to your first documentary? So I directed Ricky Lake in The Vagina Monologues. And it was interesting because, like, there were three actresses that would come in every two weeks. So I met a lot of actresses, you know. And some people would sort of stick and become friends and I would keep in touch with. And, you know, most of them I wouldn't. And Ricky was just somebody from the first rehearsal. We had the first rehearsal. She was still living in New York then. We took the bus home together down Ninth Avenue. Mm -hmm. And... I had just never met anybody who was so not a celebrity, you know, who at that time was so famous, was on every bus but in But was New a real York. person, you mean? Yeah, was the antithesis of a celebrity. Mm -hmm. was the most generous, fun. I mean, we sat on this bus. We laughed. We laughed and laughed. I mean, she was so real. And I just adored her. So we remained in touch. She had eventually moved to L.A., so she got divorced. She relocated, and she was now living in L.A., and I was out in L.A., and I was like, oh, let me try to go see Ricky. So I end up going to her house, and we start talking. And, of course, I miss my flight because we were, like, <laughs> completely, you know. Uh -huh. And she starts telling me about how she has this vision for this project she wants to do around birth and how she had this incredible experience giving birth to her second child and how different the two births were and she's going on about midwives and this and home birth and I'm thinking like oh my god she's crazy you know <laughs> I mean first of all like because we were friendly during the V-Day days when she had had her second child at home with a midwife uh -huh. but you know sometimes you have friends that do things that you kind of don't really understand and you just are like oh yeah that's cool you know but you're and like move along who would of. want to do that yeah in mm -hmm. my mind it was like who in the world would want to give birth in their bathtub without drugs I just I can't <laughs> I don't even get it so it was funny I was really skeptical but she was going on and on and I said well I've directed one documentary now you know so I do know how to do direct a documentary do you think this could be a documentary so she gave me like all these books to read and then she showed me her little home video of her giving birth mm -hmm. in her bathtub yeah. with her midwife and her doula at home. And I was like, my eyes fell out of my head. I mean, fell out of my head. So I was just shocked to like actually see her physically like push a child out. It was incredible to me to watch the footage. So I said, well, would you ever like, would you share this footage? Would this be in the right, film? And she right. said, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I never filmed it thinking I'd ever show anyone in the world, but yeah, you wow. know, if it would help. Wow. And so then I read these books about that she gave me and I I really had sort of hadn't understood how the whole like concept of empowered childbirth and midwifery care fit into my concept of feminism. Like my concept of feminism was like all about like you get the epidural the second you snap your fingers and like that's feminism and like, that's <laughs> right. empowered. And, Demanding. You know, yeah, yeah. And, and that is, that is, yeah, you know, sure. ultimately, of course, it's, and you know, it's empowered to, to give birth the way you want to give birth. But I was so, I guess, blown away by the more political context of what had happened to birth and how it was really taken out of the hands of women yeah. and put into the hands of men mm -hmm. and how men really designed 
the system that still exists yes. of, you know, women being strapped down to beds with, you know, tubes and IVs and monitors and C-sections. chemicals and C-sections and surgery and this whole disempowerment and fear mm-hmm. that, that goes on around childbirth and I think feeds into the larger sense of women just thinking their bodies are broken and don't work and they're not fertile and I can't birth on my own and yeah. I need experts and... I was really taken by the whole thing. So we started making this movie together. And, um, you know, it was it was a tricky movie to make. You know, we pitched it to a lot of studios. And it would be, like, super warm in the room, you know, because, like, all the female executives would be like, oh, my God, yes, that happened to me at my birth. And, oh, we have to make this movie. But then they would, like, run it up the flagpole and it would be, like, killed yeah. in a second. Yeah, why am I not surprised? You know. So um, we ended up making it ourselves, this movie. And... That was, you know, the beginning of our artistic collaboration. And I think we never expected the movie to hit the nerve that it hit and start essentially the movement that it started. And nowadays you walk around and people say, oh, I'm a doula. And everyone's like, oh, that's cool. I mean, when we made the film, when the film came out in 2007, that was our first question after every screening. What's a doula? Yeah. You know, I mean, there was really no conversation around this at all. It's so funny as I'm listening to you how different events had such impact on your life. Mm-hmm. The vagina monologues had an impact on my life, but clearly not in the same way that it did with your yeah. in yours. There's a Bashir kind of meant yeah. to be connection to that. We the people is different, isn't it? Yeah. I'd so, like you to talk about yeah, the so, genesis of this documentary. Sure. Yeah. So Ricky and I, um, in the last couple of years, we've we've had these two documentaries that were that were working on. So we started with one that's in production called Sweetening the Pill, which is much more in our wheelhouse. It's about the birth control pill. Okay. So that film was in production. And then with Weed the People, what happened was it was it was, I think, around the exact same time that we were, you know, working, starting to work on Sweetening the Pill. But what happened was Ricky had Ricky was on that show Dancing with the Stars. Okay. And there was a little girl whose mom kept like sending her videos and things on Twitter. Like, my daughter's your biggest fan. And there would be these adorable little videos of this little girl going like, hi, Ricky. I'm, you know, <laughs> so cute. And um, and the little girl had this disease called NF1, and she was undergoing chemotherapy because it's um, – essentially, it's, it's a disease that you're born with. It's a genetic mutation called NF1, and you have these little tumors that, that spring up on the spine and central nervous system. And so this little girl had this disease. Well – she like worked her way into like Ricky's heart. I mean, it was really special. And Ricky flew her out even to like see Dancing with the Stars. And then she really became involved with um, the mother and trying to help find any like alternative therapies. Like chemo was, she was already undergoing chemo, but she was like 40 pounds and she was seven years. I mean, it was really like killing her. Mm, And mm. it's it's not, you know, it's really the only treatment that they sort of have for NF1, but it's not, you know, it's just trying to. Is that a rare form of cancer? 
it's not really cancer NF1. It's called neurofibrosis, and it's um, it's it's just a genetic disease, okay. and it's pretty common. And you know, more kids have it than you would think. And it's a fatal disease. And it's not a fatal disease, but it depends like where the tumors spring up. So mm-hmm. the tumors were coming on her brain. She had to have brain surgery. Oh, you know, yeah, so yeah. exactly, oh, you can yeah, lose yeah. your vision. You can, yeah. So anyway, that sort of led Ricky. And her then husband, Christian, into really trying to help this child. And I guess Christian had been doing a bunch of research about um, his own health issues. He had migraines. He had chronic pain. His grandfather had bone cancer. So he was researching and came across all this information about cannabis and cannabis oil and this compound called CBD and cannabis that may work against tumors and All of a sudden, they saw some video on YouTube of some doctor in Mendocino who was talking about using this to shrink a tumor on a baby. And like 10 seconds later, Ricky's like, "Okay, so we've chartered this private plane and we're going up to Mendocino and we're taking this little girl to see this cannabis doctor. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm coming and we're bringing a camera crew because I don't know what this is going to be. Sure. But if this is a movie, this is the beginning. You know, like we have to we have to document this. This is fascinating. So again, that led into creating this movie, Weed the People, which, you know, really does focus on children with cancer and um, parents who are looking, you know, to beat the odds. You know, they're looking for more than what So is this an out. underground movement? It's a little bit getting more above ground. I mean, it's changed so much since we've made the film. You know, now UCLA is doing clinical trials. I mean, now it's really... I think moving more to the mainstream into the mainstream but back then you know it was hard cuz unless we went to Israel and you know interviewed the scientists who've been doing this work for 20 years because it hasn't been blocked in Israel where huh. it's been blocked here in Israel they can tell you all sorts of things that the co- you know the compounds in cannabis can help with incredible stroke and Crohn's disease and does it cure you or does it level it So here's the thing. I mean, I think with cancer, you like never say cure, right? Right, exactly. Because you never know. And it's always like remission. Yeah. But I think what people tend to assume here is that when you have cancer, you might smoke some pot for your side effects from chemo. That somehow it's all about this palliative effect of managing nausea and helping with appetite and sleep, which is 100% true. The other piece of it that people are not totally up on yet (laughs) is that the compounds in cannabis are actually triggering cell death in cancerous tumors. And the way that they're triggering the cell death is very interesting because it's called apoptosis, which is basically programmed cell suicide. So when you do chemo, you're just wiping out every cell, Mm -hmm, right? Good mm -hmm. cell, cancer cell, it's just a pure scorched earth policy. Right. But what they are seeing that the cannabis is doing in the test tube with cancer cells and with mice and some of the lab studies is that the cannabis is somehow gives the immune system back this ability to recognize which is a rogue cell and which is a good cell, and the cancer cells are committing suicide. Okay. It's apoptosis. Okay. So they're self-destructing without hurting any of the healthy tissue. 
In addition to that, they've found that the cannabis actually restricts the blood vessels that feed the tumors. Uh-huh. So they're really finding some incredible anti-cancer, anti-tumoral effects with this cannabis, and it's very, very real. And you'll see in the film that, you know, there's no real medical language to explain this yet, but there's so much anecdotal evidence that at this point, there's kind of no reason not to like throw that in the pot. <laughs> if you're already like doing chemo, you know, if you're mm-hmm. doing all the treatments, there's kind of you lose nothing. You lose by nothing including this. because it's almost like acupuncture where like if it helps, great. If it doesn't help. The great thing about cannabis is that it's non-toxic. There's no organ damage, no liver damage. And you can't overdose on it. Is what's going on with weed the people? Is that underground? Even though that there are scientists studying this, I mean, it's, it's yes, yeah, it's, it is underground. I mean, when we started the film, I thought, oh my god, this is like Breaking Bad. It's like these parents are like driving across the country and buying medicine out of somebody's like garage right. and giving it to their kids. And you know, it is, it is a little bit. Although you don't have to do that so much anymore when you know, a recreational marijuana is legal. Mm, true. But like, let's say in New York, if you have cancer, and if you would like to try to do a cannabis treatment, and you would would like to use the recommended dosages, let's call it the cancer killing dose. Okay, okay. That would be very hard for you to do in New York, mm-hmm. legally, because it's very limited how much you can buy here. Um, what it's prescribed for is very limited. Like if you have cancer, you might be able to get a recommendation for cannabis for pain, right? Okay. Or chemotherapy. Like anybody could get a cannabis. As in a Band-Aid. Uh, exactly. Mm-hmm. But if you go to the dispensary, what you're going to find is that the products are weak because New York State limits the potency of them. So you're going to find that they're incredibly expensive and incredibly weak. So, like, you would really moot. need to go to California. You know, you really mm-hmm. need to go somewhere where there's people who know how to make this medicine strong enough. Mm-hmm. Is it a really big movement? We chose to focus on kids with cancer mm-hmm. in the film for emotional reasons and also just because of the stigma. But I think that, you know, you're finding more, like, there's a big movement right now for, like, autism, let's say, parents of autistic children. I have personally firsthand seen some of the results of some of these children and what's what the cannabis medicine has done Mm. for some of these autistic children. One of the top, top, top PhD cancer researchers, cannabis researchers in Israel, he said, Abby, we're doing an autism trial right now. He said, I have a kid who's 17 years old who never said a word. And we put him on the cannabis, and one morning his mother came down and said, what do you want for breakfast? And he said, I'd like eggs. Holy cow. Holy cow. Oh, my God. And I've seen this with autistic children regaining speech, regaining – so I feel like there's movements with, like, epileptic children, Mm -hmm. autistic children. I think there's a big movement in the MS community. Wow, right. Parkinson's community. Yeah, sure. Crohn's and colitis community. You know, they are demanding to be able to have access to this medicine. Are you not struck still by the potency of what a documentary film can do? It's one thing to direct 
a play. It's wonderful to be able to expose us to theater. But do you feel just sort of politically so different about what it is you're doing, about what you're bringing to the populace? I do, because I think that right now people are really waking up, you know, for example, look at the opiate epidemic, okay? So (laughs) that comes up in our film Mm -hmm. because one of the families in the film, when their child was recovering from surgery, he was taking like six Oxycontin a day and four other painkiller a day. They started the cannabis oil within two days. He was taking one Oxycontin all day within two days on the cannabis oil. Mm -hmm. So this is something that's you know, we really need, like, we really need to relieve suffering and pain. It's a public service, what you're doing. Yeah. And people need to understand that there there are options that can lessen or replace the pharmaceutical drugs that people are on. And I think right now, we're all waking up to an environment where we're looking at our food, and we're looking at our pharmaceuticals, and we're looking at the companies that poison us, mm. that poison the environment that we're living in. And well, that, it's that we all don't have money. climate change either. Exactly. You know? <laughs> but it, but that it's all about money. You yeah. know, resistance to climate change is all about money. Resistance to um, alternative medicine, holistic medicine has always historically been about money. Yeah. And suppressing this knowledge. Same thing with our birth film, you know, midwives. It's all about money. And I think that's what these films do is like they lift the veil. Yeah. They let people see with their own eyes, you know, what's really going on. And and also I think they let people like this movie really speaks to the heart, you know. And I mean, I showed we showed this movie in Oklahoma City two weeks before they passed their medical referendum on medical marijuana. And they credit this film. Holy cow. And Ricky and I being oh there. Oh, my God. Because a lot of people in that, you know, in, in Oklahoma, they came into the movie and they said they were 180 degrees turned around from the movie. They had no idea that this was An not. A, right. And that this was just not this, like, dangerous narcotic. Right, you right. know That, that, that you were peddling some BS. Right. And that cannabis, you know, was a medicine in the 20s and 30s that doctors prescribed it liberally. It was like a really important medicine. And the medical, you know, the AMA actually fought the prohibition of cannabis at the time because they said, don't take this away. Like, we don't have alternatives for this. We're using this. Why are you taking this away? And the reason the government prohibited cannabis was not because it was this dangerous, crazy, addictive drug. It was for political purposes. Mm. It was because of racism, xenophobia. Yeah, what a surprise. Mm-hmm. What a surprise. So that's what I feel like these documentaries can do is they really empower people. And, and affect change. Yeah, and they and they can really create, like, groundbreaking change. Like, I expect from Weed the People, I expect there will be – I mean, I can already tell by the response to the film. This will be a game changer for sure, this film. That's a perfect way to end. Thank you for what you do. The world needs more Abby Epstein's <laughs> and Ricky Lakes. I, I can't thank you enough for sharing your career and your passion and your work. It's very empowering. Thank you. It's a pleasure. pleasure. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. But I'm